Father, we thank you and we bless you for how much you have blessed us, Lord, that we can bless others. Our desire, Lord, is that you would have your hand of protection upon Pastor Juan and Juarez and his family and his uh, congregation, as well as those that he has been helping in his drug rehab center. We ask, Lord God, that you would, uh, Lord, just give us wisdom in what we are to do and what we are to uh, provide for them, Lord. We love them. We, we know that the work is, is a good work and he is faithful and even in the midst of all of the violence that has been taking place there. And so, Father, help us to uh, hear clearly from you what uh, it is that you would have us to do. And we pray for little Adeline today. We ask, Lord God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will touch her where she is right now and heal her of anything that is causing any of the symptoms that appear to be cancer. And Lord, for this young child at one year old to, to have the, the quality of life that she can have to live and to grow in perfect health, because you, Lord God, are the perfect physician, the good physician, and the able physician to, to heal her. And so, Father, we lift her up to you and Robert and Debbie as well and her family. And uh, we pray your blessings upon them. Now, Father, we ask for the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit to be upon us today that we may gain, Father, your wisdom and understanding as we study this passage of Scripture today. May we be uh, attentive to it, Lord God. And in the midst of the things that we will be hearing today, it gives us uh, great joy, Lord God, to lift up Tony and Helen to you and, and thank you for the example they are of, uh, of a couple to uh, be able to uh, give testimony of 50 years of, of marriage. We ask that you would continue to bless them, Lord, and, and bless Tony and, and his, uh, his need, Lord God, just to be strengthened physically uh, so that he can continue, Lord, to serve you. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. <laughs> well, um, we're moving right along. Today's verse 18. But just so that you'll be ex encouraged, I'm going to read down through verse 20. If you don't mind. We've been taking a good long look at creation. And uh, as we are going through the book of Genesis and dealing with the uh, battle for truth and what it is that we are equipping ourselves with in the truth of, of these first two chapters in particular, uh, we are indeed asking, I keep switching to the wrong glasses here, I'm sorry. Uh, we are asking the Lord to keep giving us that wisdom. Today is a very critical issue as we look at this passage today. It says, and the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an helpmeet for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helpmeet for him. At the onset of our study last week, I stated that the more that we dig into the details of the book of Genesis, the more we will realize the deep-seated purposes and plans of an extremely wise 
and rational creator who would never do, say, or act on anything or create, make, or form anything capriciously. Which means to say that the Lord would never say or do anything randomly, erratically, changeably, impulsively, suddenly, or even on a whim. And never would he say or do anything superficially. Nothing God does is ever by accident or even by coincidence. He is sovereign God. And he is providential in all that he does. And everything that he does is good. Everything God does is good. The creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them has never done anything by trial and error. And has never had to go back to square one, as we said last time. He does everything right the first time and every time. And I think we should say amen to that. That said, I look at the current state of our world, our society, our culture, and I realize that many people would not share these statements at all with me. Man's perceptions and opinions about the Judeo-Christian God and his revelation found in the Holy Scriptures, the Bible, bring to mind a statement and a story I read this week in World Magazine. By the way, World Magazine is a, is a Christian magazine uh, that is similar to Newsweek time in the sense of giving current news and current events from a Christian perspective. But I was reading this story, in, uh, or this article, I should say, in World Magazine by one of its editors, Marvin Olasky. And in this particular article, this is what he writes. He says, when I think of the disjunction between evidence of God's power and our reactions to it, this story comes to mind. A grandmother is watching her only grandchild playing on the beach. A huge wave comes and yanks him out to sea. She pleads, please God, save my grandson. Immediately a big wave comes and washes the boy back onto the beach unharmed. But the grandmother looks up to heaven and says angrily, he had a hat. Now, Olasky adds this thought. He says, we so much like being the center of attention that we don't realize our foolishness. We so much like being the center of attention that we don't realize our foolishness. God does these wondrous, mighty, awesome things. And we react by saying, it's not enough. It's not the way I do it. Consider, if you will, the reactions to one of the most crucial issues facing our country, politically, philosophically, as well as theologically. It's the issue of same-sex marriage. A few years ago, then-President George W. Bush stated a number of times when asked, when asked, that marriage is a union between one man and one woman in America. He hoped that it would stay that way, and efforts were being made to protect marriage. So what was prominent lesbian Rosie O'Donnell's reaction to President Bush's call for an amendment? She said this, and I quote, I think the actions of the president yesterday are, you know, in my opinion, the most vile and hateful words ever spoken by a single president, in my opinion. 
I am stunned and I'm horrified, end quote. And so for taking a stand for the traditional time-honored definition of marriage, which, by the way, has proven time and again to be the best for society. It's not perfect, but it's the best for society. The president's words were called hateful and vile. Today we stand at a time and a place where just being a Christian, taking a stand for what is truth, speaking the truth in love, can be considered hateful and vile. It would seem obvious that President Bush's foundational source for believing in and standing on this definition of marriage would be God's word. But was he being hateful and vile? That's the question. Was he being hateful and vile? Do you think that my raising my voice at that point in time was being hateful? Or was I just being passionate about what I believe? Do you understand the difference? Are we being hateful to believe that in the beginning God established the standard of marriage in a sovereign, providential, rational, reasonable, and loving way? When, as his word says, as we've read so many times now in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Is it being hateful to believe that? And then just to state that that is what we believe is true. But you see, the problem is that man has complicated the issue of relationships by the continued references to sexual identities, sexual habits. I emphasize the word sexual because we keep aiming toward that particular statement. Sexual identity, sexual habits, sexuality differences and distinctions, etc., etc., ad nauseum. The labels themselves, heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, transsexual, transgender, lesbian, and the like, have been the logs to fuel the fires of hatred between all the sides involved. You know, we can throw labels around. But didn't the Lord just simply say, male and female created he them? Didn't he just simply establish a foundation? Now, sadly, some Christians have approached the conflict in a hateful and condemning way. I'm sure that we've all seen the news reports or articles with pictures on it where people are standing, let's say, at a, at a gay pride parade in some city, and, and there's a group of huddled Christians with big placards and signs saying, of course, all homosexuals are going to hell. And, and uh, you know, using such language that makes me wonder whether Jesus would have approved of that particular method. But please understand this. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to speak the truth in love. So let's remember that, first of all. But understand this, if you understand anything at all today, that no sexual sin is better or worse than any other. Now, in the weeks to come, I'm going to take you to the scriptures so, so that we can see the, 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 the juxtaposition of all of these uh, sins. 
because of the arguments that are thrown against the Bible and against traditional uh, marriage and traditional uh, views and all. And uh, the, the desire for some people to say, well, you know, the, uh, the homosexuality issue is, is you know, we, we've, we've gone beyond that now. So, you know, culturally it's acceptable and all that. Well, well just a minute. We, we, we have to take what God says. So uh, let's get back to this thought. No sexual sin is better or worse than any other. Some will condemn homosexuals, but be a little less condemning of fornicators and adulterers. This is a point we need to take to heart. On the other hand, homosexuals, or homosexual proponents, I should say, will demand that homosexuality has now passed the test culturally and socially, and because of its acceptance is no longer to be condemned. But isn't it still wrong to... Now listen, isn't it still wrong to marry a sister? Isn't it wrong to marry your mother? Isn't it wrong to marry a brother or a father? much less the family pet. But these are all issues covered by the scriptures, along with homosexuality. So we can't take one out and say, well, this one's okay, and all these other ones okay. If we, we don't like this and this and this and that, but, but this one, you know, it's, 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 it's acceptable. No, 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 they're all together still. We'll, we'll deal with this more later. I just want to kind of scratch the surface in a general sense, but I just want us to realize that things haven't changed from the time the law was given. So you see how volatile an issue we're dealing with here. And I pray that we would approach this in the love of Christ. I pray that we'll be able to speak the truth in love and have people understand we're not trying to be hateful or vile. God has set a standard long before any of us were around to complicate things. So let's consider his word now. Verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good. That man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helpmeet for him. I think we can say very clearly that uh, when God did this, he was doing this to make a driving, I mean, a, a driving home a great point here. As wonderful and as beautiful as animals are, we're not compatible to them. And we're not comparable to them. Pure and simple. I think we can, I can, I think we can understand that, can't we? Now, throughout the rest of this chapter, we will discover a precious passage of Scripture. We will find the experience of need and desire on Adam's part. We will see the experience of caring and love on God's part. We will see the experience and promise and provision by God. We will uh, see and experience the anticipation and the excitement of Adam and the, the experience of warmth and tenderness both by Adam and Eve as we go on through this chapter. But I've entitled this study From Husbandman to Husband because it is in this next section of chapter 2 of Genesis that we discover a second garden. The first garden, of course, is Eden. 
the delightful garden given to Adam. But the second would be Eve. The second garden is Eve. Intended in a more romantic sense to also be a delightful garden for Adam. I want you to think of the words written by Solomon from the beautiful Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. In chapter 4, verse 12 and following, it says, A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. By the way, I'm not contradicting myself when he calls her a sister. Uh, Just thought I'd mention that. A fountain sealed, a garden enclosed, a fountain sealed. Thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, camphor with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices. That just means she smells real pretty. A fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. What, is, what a description of a garden. The garden of his spouse. So we see two gardens, one material, the other marital. To the one he is called a husbandman, to the other he is to be a husband. Once again, getting ahead of ourselves, we see that the world today we live in is, in, it, is no paradise. I think you'd have to agree. The world that we're living in is no paradise. Adam and Eve, as we shall see in more detail in chapter 3, sinned. And both of the delightful gardens God had given to mankind were affected. The material world we live in has lost the perfections and the purity of the Garden of Eden. And the person that you are married to, or maybe the person you're considering preferably to marry, is no Adam and Eve before their fall. In other words, they're not perfect, are they? But we also understand that Jesus Christ did some things in two other gardens that restored the delights of both the work God has given and the wife or husband that he's given to you. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus submitted to the will of his Father and he went to the cross. In a tomb in a garden very near Calvary, Jesus rose from the dead. By the way, we know the tomb was in a garden because in John 19.41 it says, Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher where he, where was, uh, wherein was uh, never man yet laid. And so two gardens, another two gardens. And in these two gardens, the Garden of Gethsemane and the Garden Tomb, Jesus Christ our Lord changed everything. He changed everything. Men and women who were lost, hell-bound sinners, can be saved for eternity. And the two gardens affected by the fall of Adam and Eve can be restored as delights until the return of Christ. And so let's get back to verse 18 for just a moment. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. Now, remembering that the book of Genesis is a book of firsts, consider that in this verse is the first time that God saw something that was not good. 
The first time that God saw something that was not good. You do remember that every day of creation, God did something and he said, it's good. God saw it and it was good. It was good. It was good. And then it was very good when it was all said and done. But now it says that God saw something that is not good. It is not good that man should be alone. What he saw was the aloneness of man. The aloneness of man. And this brings to mind that God never intended for man to be alone, either in the marital or social sense. Well, there are times, we've considered it uh, possibly in the, in the life of the Apostle Paul, that uh, you know, he had uh, no wife. Now it is believed that he had a wife uh, when he was uh, a Jewish uh, member of the Sanhedrin, uh, but after that, maybe she had uh, renounced his Christian faith and he was alone, but uh, and some people may be set aside to serve the Lord in that particular capacity, but in one way or another, they're not really alone. They're serving the Lord together with other people, or else they uh, uh, certainly are met with God's presence as well. In all ways, we have to remember that we're not alone because of God's Presence, but, but in fact, God never intended for man to be alone, either in one sense or the other. And another thing to consider is that because of this, it is obvious that God also planned woman. Woman was as much the creation of God as was man. She didn't just come upon the scene, as we said, randomly or erratically or changeably or impulsively or suddenly or even on a whim. Woman was planned. Again, look at uh, Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created a man, uh, created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. And then he said, male and female created he them. And we would have to believe that all of that could have taken place all in the sixth day as well, because that's the day the man was created. We'll talk about that next time. But take note that the creation of woman is dealt with in great detail in our text. In other words, from verse 18 all the way down to verse 25 at the end of the, of the chapter. And why? Why is it so detailed? Well, the primary reason seems to be this. It is to establish and to set the relationship between man and woman forever. It is the establishment of this relationship, male and female. But before we expand on this, let me say that things were not good in the garden only in the sense that they were incomplete. You see, God was not saying that something was not good because it was imperfect. And you'll see why. Let me get ahead of myself one more time and realize, make you realize, and we all need to realize this, that man had his help meet inside of him. Later on in this chapter, God would take man, put him to sleep, take a rib out, and from that rib form woman. He was incomplete because she was not yet in the form that God wanted her to be. But it was still a perfect environment. It was still a perfect situation. And Adam was still perfectly in the image of God. So, with that in mind... 
Adam needed a helper comparable to him, a helpmeet for him. And Eve would complete Adam, and Adam would complete Eve, and together they would be God's husbandmen over the garden. Together. The two shall become one. Now, what was necessary for Adam was actually built into him by God. So, what this teaches us is this, first of all. Man and woman are related to each other. Intimately so. Man and woman are related to each other. They are bound together and they are totally dependent upon each other. One cannot exist without the other. Man and woman need each other, desperately need each other. And the Lord needed to reveal this fact to all generations. Secondly, though, man and woman are also different persons. They are distinct individuals. Each has a distinctive role upon earth. Each was created for a different purpose. Obviously, there are differences between men and women. Physically. Emotionally at times. And and we will talk about this again as we go along. But each must fulfill his or her role in order to survive. Excuse me, in order to survive and to have a full and complete life. Excuse me. Now the Lord certainly knows what we have need of before we even ask him for it. And and we must always remember that this great truth is found in Philippians chapter 4 verse 19. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. My God shall supply your need. Our God supplies everything that we need. God will not leave us incomplete. So as far as Adam's helpmeet goes, as far as Adam's comparableness goes, it was the Lord himself who planned and who spoke in this event. The plan for woman's creation was not just an afterthought. It it was not an inferior plan. And by the way, uh, ladies, it was not a superior plan either. I say that because uh, there have been some people, uh, uh, women's groups that would say, well, God created man, then he realized he could do better. (laughs) No, that's not true. That's not in the scriptures. That's made up. So woman's creation was not just an afterthought. It wasn't an inferior plan. It was not, it was, uh, not of lesser importance. And it was not given less attention and thought than the creation of man. On the contrary, the opposite of this is true. Great attention and great thought were given to the creation of woman. Getting back for just a moment to the phrase, not good, when, when it says that, that he saw that it is not good that man should be alone. The meaning of this little phrase, not good, is very clear in the Hebrew. It means incomplete, unfinished, unfulfilled, and deficient. In other words, standing by himself, standing alone, man is incomplete, man is unfinished, he's unfulfilled, he's deficient, and eventually he's lonely. And God knew this all along. Without woman, man would have no suitable companion for love and comfort. Neither would he be able to reproduce, nor to work and subdue the earth as the Lord had instructed. In the next verse, 28, which is in Genesis 1, we read verse 27, but but then in verse 28 it says, And God blessed them, 
male and female, man and woman, God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. In other words, be my husbandman. Now here's the point. Man was only half of God's plan for human life. Man was only half of God's plan for human life. Woman was the other half. God's plan was not complete until woman was created. Consequently, the Lord planned the creation of woman. Planned to create her right along with man. The same problems, by the way, afflict man today. Loneliness. Emptiness. Deficiency. Incompleteness and a lack of fulfillment. And mankind tries to fill their lives with things. We could talk about mankind trying to fulfill their lives with prosperity, but let's also consider this. That mankind tries to fill their lives with such things as perversions and pornography and the like. That one particular area in a man's life or in a person's life. Remember that God didn't create man and woman to suffer such afflictions. But too many of us do. And all because of sin. There's the problem. Genesis chapter 3. You know, we haven't gotten there yet, but we've talked about it a lot, haven't we? We have because we already know what the problem is. And the question is, is there an answer? Is there deliverance to these problems? In a word that I've already heard someone say, yes. Yes. There is an answer. God's word declares that Jesus Christ came to the earth for this very purpose. To give us life, both abundant and eternal life. All anyone has to do is this, to turn to Jesus Christ and to follow him. It's when we do so that he gives us that life everlasting for which we so long for. We long for that life. But one thing that we need to remember as we come to the table of communion this morning, we need to remember that God set a standard. God set a standard that he hasn't changed. He didn't set a standard before the fall and then after the fall decided, well, you know, maybe we should lessen the standard. No, what what happened after the fall? Not long after the fall came, the law. And in the law, in all of the uh, uh, statutes and, and, and uh, directives from the law of the basic commandments given to the children of Israel in, Isaac, in, uh, in uh, Mount Sinai, or at Mount Sinai, all of the law refers back to the foundational 
standard. But where we see that Moses brought the law, Jesus brings grace and truth. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Our understanding of the law, our understanding of the fulfillment of that law, because we know that in Christ all the law is fulfilled. The two tablets of the law are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so it's coming to Christ because it is coming to life. In the garden, man and woman were filled with the life God gave them. But he gave a warning to Adam before even Eve at least comes onto the scene for us. What was that warning? We read it last week. Of all the trees of the garden you shall eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. For on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Amongst all the trees that God said you can live, uh, you can eat from was the tree of life. And we talked about this last week. And who is our life? John 1 verse 4 says what? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. You want light in your life? You need the life of Christ in your life. John 5 24, Jesus himself says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. You see, when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and e- or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they died spiritually. And God had to do something. God had to take an action. I know we haven't gotten there yet, but I'm not going to wait till then. I don't know when that's going to be. When we get to chapter 3. But we know the story already. We know the account. God took action. They ate of the tree and what did they see? They were ashamed. They were naked and they knew it. And they covered themselves with fig leaves of all things. Itchy fig leaves. And God said, let me take care of that. And he killed an animal. And the blood was shed of this animal. And from this animal he took the skins, probably a sheep, and he clothed Adam and Eve. It happened, but it was symbolic as well. It gave us the type of our Savior dying, shedding his blood, and covering us with himself. So that we might have that life again. To pass from the death that we suffered from disobedience into life 
everlasting. Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they may have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Life. By the way, Jesus says in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except by me. I am the life. I quote this often, but Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through, verses 28 through 30 says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You'll find rest. What did we say last week when God put Adam in the garden? That statement of placing him there said, I have set him to rest. And it is that rest that so many of us need in this day and in this time. And then Paul himself says in Romans 10, verses 8 through 13, But what saith it? The, the word is nigh thee or near thee even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with a heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with a mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. If you believe on him, what shame is there any longer? Jesus took our sins, and he took our shame, and he hung it on a tree. So those who believe on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. As we come to the bread and the cup this this morning. It isn't a matter of saying, you know, I've got to clean myself before I can take that because I don't want to take it unworthily. Let's understand what the scripture is. Do you know that this bread and this cup is for sinners? It's for us. What we're doing here today is to reflect upon what Jesus Christ has done so we can once again refocus our lives, refocus our attention, refocus our heart upon living from this day forward, from this table forward. In the love, mercy, grace, and truth of Jesus Christ. Because it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Because it is his life in us. And, and, and I said a lot of things today. Uh, you know, bringing up some issues that we're going to deal with in the, in the next time. By the way, I, I just re- you know, I realized last night, I said, you know what, next week is Mother's Day and so we're going to focus our attention on some things in the book of Genesis about mothers. And so we're not staying away from our text. But, uh, but soon enough, we're going to have to come back and deal with some of these issues where we will see the standards that God has set. But the fact of the matter is we have learned. We in our flesh cannot keep these standards without God being our strength. Without Jesus Christ being in our life. Without the power of the Holy Spirit guiding and directing us each and every day. So as we take the bread and the cup, let's focus our attention upon the work of Jesus Christ and why he came so that we can understand clearly the standards that God has set from the beginning.